My name is Yana Healy, and I like to play Kingdom for Cleeflings because it's fun and you get to build homes for Cleeflings. Then they get out of the homes, and then you can make them do work or put them in houses and. Or you can put them in houses or make them work and then make them unwork. And then you can build stuff like castles and paint arts. And the end. And my name is Yana Haley and the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. VorpalNetwork.com This episode of The Tome Show is sponsored by Gamerati, It's Good to Be a Gamer, Continue Magazine, a gaming culture magazine about all sorts of gaming, and listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon store. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for April 2012. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner, and in each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related novel, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. Our book for this month was Deathmark by Robert J. Schwab, who will be joining us later in the show. But also joining us in this discussion is Andy Meyer and Robert Aducci. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Hi. So we actually have book club people to talk about the book club book today. Shenanigans. I'm very excited. It's awesome. And if you want to join us for our next book, it's going to be a comic book update. We're going to look at issues 13 to 15 of, the, of D&D, which wraps up the storylines and then begins the long hiatus. And we're also going to look at Infest- Infestation 2 D&D comics. Uh, wait, what's the next one? D&D 2012... Annual? The, the annual, yep. They're both set in Eberron? Mm-hmm. Oh, I the, don't know the, anything about Eberron. <laughs> Infestation 2 is a just a two-issue storyline that's set in Eberron. The annual is set in Eberron. Okay. Um, and then 13 through 15 finishes what, everything we haven't reviewed so far of the D&D comic, and then um, word is they're not going to publish any more D&D comics for the rest of the year. The, the only ongoing D&D comic we can expect for the rest of the year is the Forgotten Realms comic. By Ed Greenwood. By Ed Greenwood, which is the one. The other, if if we can get a digital copy of it before the end of next month, um, we'll, we'll hopefully look at that next month uh, for next month's book club as well. Okay. So awesome. it's going to be a smattering of random comic book goodness. A little bit of of Nintir Vale, a little bit of uh, Eberron, and a little bit of Forgotten Realms. Uh, continuing the indoctrination of Tracy into comic books. You haven't read anything, Eberron? <laughs> uh, I've read a couple of novels. So but, that, I mean, that's more than I've read. That's true. And have you played in the setting at all? No. Okay. Well, I, you'll get along fine. Com- the comic books are pretty pretty easy to uh, to jump into something like this. Yeah. So. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. Very good. Before we get into all of that all, uh, and the the book discussion and all that, we will need a quick word from our newest sponsor, Continue Magazine. It is a quarterly magazine that talks about all things gaming, video games, board games, war games, RPGs. It's almost guaranteed if you like playing games, there is something in Continue Magazine that you will enjoy. 
For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community. The global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, alternate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com And now let's talk about Deathmark. All right, so what do we think? Who wants to go first? Uh, I'll go first. I loved this book. It was uh, it was a breath of fresh air after the other more recent uh, Dark Sun novels. They just didn't quite uh, cut it for me. I guess I'm too much of an old grognard and like the old setting, and so there was too many different things. And uh, in, this, in this book, Rob Schwab uh, kept some of the old stuff but added some new stuff, but just blended it all together nicely right on see and i don't have the experience of the old stuff or the new stuff this is the only dark sun novel i've ever read yeah that's the same one. with me too what'd you say robert i said then it's a good one because uh it really exemplifies just like what dark sun should be to me right on andy what'd you think i would have to fully agree with especially with that last statement um, I'm also a, an old school uh, Dark Sun fan, and when they re, when they kicked off the line, re-kicked it off with the city under the sea I, sand. I couldn't get past chapter three on that, but the death mark fit in perfectly between the prison prison pentad uh, one and two from the original series, and, and it really just it, it's just full of the flavor of Dark Sun. Right on. See, I had a hard time um, getting into it. As I, I'm somebody who's used to reading books with a lot of lore, but it's Forgotten Realms books, that, and I've been steeped in that lore since I was you know 12. Uh, and so I'm used to being very comfortable with that lore. Um, this, this book, I could feel where there was a lot of lore, and I start to understand what Tracy's gone through the last uh, year or so that we've been doing these book clubs, because I, f- I felt that there was a lot of lore there, and I, you know, I could feel that it was between these major events, that, and, and it didn't make sense to me. It's like, well, there's this major stuff going on. Why aren't they talking about that? Well, okay, it turns out it's because it's happening in these other books that he's sort of tying it into. And so I start, I start to understand some of that. I also felt like there were just a lot of characters to keep track of. Definitely. Um, and I don't know if that's a, a strength or, or a weakness or if it's just my brain is not such that I could keep track. I mean, the first four chapters, each chapter introduces you know two or three new characters in each chapter, and they don't go back to the other ones. And, and three of those ca- characters are young noble women traveling through the desert. You know, and given all those similarities, I had a hard time sort of remembering which one was which as as we got through until about halfway through the book, and then I sort of understood what was happening and, and I grasped the whole thing, and it really picked up for me. I, I thought it was interesting how how he was always introducing these uh, characters in pairs. There there'd be the human main character and their non non human sidekick. Man, that's a good point. Never thought of that. Yeah, I, I, as, as you're saying that, you're, it's true. I never really. Uh, picked up on the fact that it was always a human and something else. Except for the Templar. The Templar didn't really have a sidekick. Uh, he had the Thrycreen for a while until it got brutally killed. Well, but, it, I mean, the Thrycreen was only there for, like, what, a, a chapter? Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, I mean, he seems like a, a loner in the whole bunch. Although, 
he ended up, I guess you could argue he ended up with multiple partners, so to speak. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he worked with Melek for a while uh, and Melek sort of left Kep and, and his sidekick. And, and then he started working with Paka for a while until she died. Yeah. So he always had, had a sidekick, but it was never really his sidekick. Right. He kept stealing them from other people. As Templars are wont to do. <laughs> As a defiler, I suppose that makes sense. And it was kind of cool seeing people get mixed up. Because it, it wasn't just the humans, like, or uh, Melek getting, or, wait, who? Korvac. Yeah, Korvac yeah, was, I, Templar. was a Templar. Yeah. See, you still can't keep him straight. Well, so <laughs> if I were to say one potentially negative thing of that there were a lot of characters and that in itself wasn't hard it wasn't necessarily difficult but there were a lot of characters that began with the same letter and mm-hmm. first name like Aris, uh, Aris and and when, we, when we talked to Erin she talked about uh, the importance sometimes of uh, making sure the characters have different first letters and different sounding names mm-hmm. and I definitely ran into that a little bit with uh, Korvac and Kalik yeah about them, half the characters actually uh, come right out of some of the source books, right? And I think that's part of what I what I liked about it because um, I, I had just gotten done over over the previous year before this book came out, uh, going through all my old source books in preparation for the mini campaign I ran, and I, it was pretty interesting to see these characters come to life. So, which characters were you already familiar with from the source books? I'm curious which ones you picked out as as coming um, from there. Thaxus Fordon. Mm-hmm. And uh, Talera, they're both outlined. Um, Tom Nyasham, mm-hmm. the uh, most evil character of the book. Uh, the, the, actually, the whole Sham family, the Giovo Sham and Jabea Sham, who I think was only mentioned. I can't remember if he had a scene or not. Yeah, I thought uh, in my home campaign, they, my PCs were fighting. Uh, Tom Nyasham ended up being the major bad guy. For a little while, so that was kind of interesting that she showed up in the book. Hmm. So, did you pull any inspiration out of the book from from that? Uh, actually, they had already kind of mostly finished up with her by the time the book came out. Okay, you just sort of had had her in your life for a while, then. Right. Yeah, she was uh, already kind of uh, the bad guy in in my campaign for a little while. Hold on. So, I'm I'm curious. Um, if you were to, to say some of the characters are, are the good guys and some of the characters are the bad guys, as much as you can in a Dark Sun story, who are the good guys in this story? Who are we supposed to be cheering for? Uh, it kind of seems like Lauren, uh, you know, the gladiator, is, is kind of the good guy. Um, and Eris at first seems like he is, but um, I really liked his sort of fall throughout the book. That was interesting. Um, I wasn't expecting... Uh, well, I don't want to spoil too much in case somebody hasn't read it, I guess. Oh, it's a book club. Okay. We're speaking as if everybody who's listening has read it. Yeah. Okay, well, in that case, um, uh, it was great to see kind of Alayda Stell. I think she, um, if I remember correctly, she kind of sort of turned turned good, sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was interesting. I, I kind of thought she was good through most of the book, actually. I, I, she, she's starting just trying to improve her own standing in, in her house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, like I said, I'm a huge fan of Darkson. So the Stell family, uh, the Merchant House Stell, they're classically kind of like a bad family. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. o- overall the family. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I guess that's kind of where I got, you know, was kind of thinking in that in that manner. Well, and she certainly. I mean, we were introduced to her 
piecing together a plot that certainly didn't paint her in a positive light. Right. And quickly spun out of her control. Sure. Yeah. Well, it turns out that that plot didn't go anywhere anyway. Just the information that she gave up ended up being used against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard because I feel like by the end of the book, you had more good guys than you did at the beginning of the book. Yeah. You know? Um, I feel like at, I felt like at the beginning I connected the most with with Melek. Um, you know, he's not a good guy, but he at least has some sort of code, right? He was sort of uh, appalled by just the 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 thoughtless killing of others. You know, he's a thief, but he's not a killer. Yeah. yeah. And he, it, go ahead. Like you said, he, he's an honorable one too. I mean, when when it came time to. Uh go back to the master thief and, and get himself uh, executed, he was willing to walk right in if he t- just because of his honor. Mm-hmm. Um, Lauren, I liked at the beginning, and, and of course, as you're, I think, meant to, liked less and less as time went on. Um, but Korvac took almost the opposite arc, right? I mean, he started out and spent most of the book as a bad guy trying to do not necessarily bad things. You know, um, but by the end of it, you almost got the impression that, that he took a turn for for being better. Like he became a better person at the end. Well, I think having hordes of undead come out <laughs> into the city uh, kind of can turn a lot of people to good. Sure, <laughs> right. at least work together. Yeah, Pekka was a good influence on him. I think. I think, yeah. I, you know what? I think Paka was a good influence on everybody around her because I feel like Talara uh, Vorden was also kind of a good person. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she definitely seemed good. You know, uh, so I think you know, I think we actually had a lot of heroic type people. They just seldom made heroic type decisions, and that's indicative, I think, of Dark Sun. Yeah, and one, and one of the interesting things about Pekka too was that uh, she had the ability to do magic through the ancestors, right. like magical type stuff, which is often seen as a sign of evil in that world, like. You shouldn't be doing that. Nobody really understands it sort of thing. So that was well, cool, that, too. That would be more the, um, the preserver defiler type magic. What she was doing was, was more of the elemental, yeah, but um, the, cleric-y people, type magic. But there were multiple characters who kind of looked at her weird. and Like, Talara didn't like her doing it because it was still considered kind of magic and not, not something she really wanted to be associated with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really liked the inclusion of Paka. Uh, Rob Schwab, one of the best things I think he did was have that character in there. Um, because one of the cool things about Dark Sun, you know, 2nd Edition was how, how different the, the major races were. And in 2nd Edition, the focus, which we get to see a great deal of with Paka, was, was really emphasized. While with 4th Edition, that was sort of de-emphasized. And it was really great to see um, you know, him kind of bringing that lore back. Because I think it's a really cool aspect mm-hmm. of uh, the Dark Sun Dwarves. The, the yeah, Dwarven focus, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she was she definitely had that that focus thing. I mean, to a fault, which I think is is intentional, right? They're, that's supposed to be sort of a fault. Yep, that's yes. what it's supposed to be. Yep. Um, you know, and it was it was like you're you're looking at her and you're thinking, why does she keep <laughs> doing these things and supporting these people and doing you know acting the way she's acting, and and it's very much about that that Dwarven focus that that right. re- refusing to let anything go. Um, I wonder if I if I didn't know a little bit about Dark Sun, if that wouldn't have thrown me a little bit. But as it was, I think Paka was probably my favorite character, and I was a little upset when she died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was upset, too. But uh, I think the other thing with her is just... Uh, so you have Tyr, which has freed the slaves. 
Um, but she's really holding on to the old ways. And even by following the old ways, she doesn't get what she wants and in the end because she becomes uh, a banshee. Mm-hmm. And she's not from Tyr either, so she, she's still a slave because to, to their, the Vorden family still keeps – pretty much everyone outside of Tyr still keeps slaves. Right, right. But what I'm saying is like it, when you get to Tyr, you get to this place where there are new ideas like f- like freeing huh. all the slaves and stuff like that. Um. So it's kind of cool, I think, to see that see an example where just following the old ways doesn't necessarily get you what you want either. Well, and I feel like um, it was alluded to, if not outright said, at one point in the book that um, you know somebody was telling what was Paka's friend um, who was in charge of the guard. Uh, I can't remember his name now. Ka- uh, not Cap. Cap. No, Cap. But, was but, but it was something similar to that, right? Again, I want to say like Rex or something. Like yeah, that. maybe. Um, but but his right but his, uh, his I think I think he may have made a statement to the effect of you know even if you're a slave now when we get to Tyr you'll be free which sort mm-hmm. of in my mind implied if you bring slaves to Tyr legally they're no no longer slaves and you right. have to let them go and I thought oh. Talara at one point says that she's free right yeah yeah she freed her yeah well, but of course she didn't care because she's got that dwarven focus right. Exactly. Now, I wondered if, and you guys with more background with Dark Sun may know better, um, it felt a little bit to me, as I was looking at Paka, that this was a little bit of fitting 4th edition and the idea of primal magic into the game. You know, that she wasn't necessarily a cleric, an elemental cleric in the 2nd edition style, but she felt a little bit more like, you know, almost a shaman to me. Yeah, that that could be. Um, I kind of felt like... Again, with fourth edition, the, the the elemental clerics they they sort of played that down quite mm-hmm. a bit. It, it felt like it was a, a bigger part of uh, the second edition stuff. But um, yeah, I think that's a good point that she could have definitely been some kind of shaman rather than elemental priest. Unless I can't really remember if she casts any specific kind of uh, elemental spells. I think most of her spells were were summonings, right? Or at least that's how they interpreted them or skinned, it, it skinned was them. of water but a lot of times but yeah no it, it could easily work either way i think mm-hmm. depending it, it, on your background um part, part of what i liked is that, that there wasn't really much in here that felt you know kind of foray if, if you looked at it as as a novel based on a game mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. this could have come out when the original novels came out and uh, aside from being a lot better than most of them uh, you, you wouldn't think it was based on a different set of rules or anything yeah definitely right on so how does it compare to the the books that it that flank it now you know the the story story of this comes in between prison pintad one and two how does it compare to those books it's grittier grittier okay yeah definitely uh those books are kind of more on you know getting on an epic scale the whole thing about dark sun was was that uh you know the your characters could become dragons and, and, and Evangians, which Evangians are kind of like advanced beings of mm-hmm. preservers, whereas the dragons were advanced beings of, of uh, defilers. So the whole prison bentad was much, much grander in, uh, in scope. Okay. So the prison bentad dealt with some of these larger, these larger, um, more epic sort of stories. And this one is more, a little more street level. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, also the prison bentad had, um, characters who were 
more quote unquote good. Okay. Through and through. So I, and, so I might have had an easier time with the prison pentad because I would have known this is the hero that I need to follow and pay pay the most attention to. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And a smaller cast of characters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this book had a lot going on. Yeah, this book was super uh, super detailed, but I I think. Uh, even though I can see why it would be a little bit uh, difficult to, to follow everybody, I think all of the characters were sort of like major aspects of Dark Sun. Like everybody had their, you know, you had Thaxos who was the the, the dark dealing noble, and you had Elaida Stell who was sort of like coming from a bad family, but but was still sort of good herself. You had Paka the dwarf who, you know, exemplified dwarves. Korvac the Templar, although he wasn't completely kind of evil like. I generally view Templars. He was a good kind of middle ground. Um, the gladiator, you know, was Lauren was sort of in the middle. Eris really exemplified the uh, the preserver, kind of turning towards defiling. Um, Melek was a great thief. Temia, again, she was just an evil, uh, an evil merchant um, mm-hmm. uh, princess, sort of. Well, and, uh, and, and a dabbler in dark magic. Yeah, definitely. In yeah. ways that nobody else was. And uh, finally, uh, I think Watari, the halfling, was pretty oh. awesome. Like, when people talk about darks and halflings, they're pretty much talking about that stere- stereotype. Mm-hmm. And uh, he really played it up well. Well, even, I mean, there were, there were two halflings, right? You had Watari and Cap, and both of them were pretty equally despicable. <laughs> Which was interesting because we're made to believe that Watari is significantly less honorable. But their sense of honor is completely different from our sense of honor because, by my by my standards, they were both pretty horrible people. Yeah. Right on. So I, um, I, I found the whole thing very interesting. I didn't necessarily expect this to be a a an undead based story, um, and so I was surprised by in the direction it went. Um, did you catch? Or did you feel like uh, the the whole thing was was sort of uh, enabled? This undead army was enabled by this strange black um, orb thing that um, that what's his name Eris ended up carrying that was Temnia's. Um, did you guys catch sort of feel like you understood what that was and what was going on with that? I, we've we've already talked to Rob about it and he's going to answer that question later on. But I'm curious if you guys really sort of grabbed on to to what that was all about. I kind of thought it was the obsidian orbs play a, a strong role in the dragon magic in the original uh, stories. So I, I kind of assumed it was along those lines. I, I don't really recall it being spelled out in the book exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I mean, it it's, pretty, it's pretty vaguely hinted at, but it's not, he never really specifically said, talks about it. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, he just kind of explained it as a black shard. And um, I sort of thought when I was first reading the book, it was originally uh, advertised as one of the Abyssal Plague novels, so I kind of thought it might have had something to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they later said that uh, it wasn't an Abyssal Plague novel. Um, but uh, in my interview with Rob on uh, Athos.org, he kind of talked about that as well. But if he uh, talked about it with you guys, I'll just let it go to that. Okay. <laughs> well, the gist of it seems to be that um, it was an intentional mystery to be explored in a possible future book too. So, right. Yeah, one of the few kind of uh uh critiques I could give of the book was uh that the ending felt pretty rushed and and it was a little confusing. I was a little confused at kind of the events that were happening. 
some of them, you know, made sense, but some of them were just kind of like, for example, the big creatures that came out of the ground, uh, like, where did they come from? And, like, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really explain that too much. Um, and then the only other thing I could nitpick was uh, his use of a creature that wasn't really a riding creature, but, again, that's just a pretty ridiculous nitpick. What what creature was not supposed to be a riding creature? Uh, he called it a an Erdlu. There's an Erd, there's a creature called an Erdlu, which is like a flightless bird that, uh, mm-hmm. that's used for food. And then there's one called a Crodlu, which are used for riding. And there's a thing called a War Crodlu, which are kind of like, you know, a war horse, but they're these giant flightless birds. Oh. See, that's obviously not something I would have ever caught. <laughs> yeah. I think overall he kept to canon much better than even all the other books that came after the Prism Pen Pad, that, which established canon. Yeah, definitely. They uh, in the other books that you know, one of the things again, it just took a while to get used to was calling half giants Goliaths, and uh, that just bugged me for a long time. And then I just kind of decided that okay, well, that's just like their nickname. They just call them Goliaths or whatever. But uh, he definitely kept on you know calling them Goliaths or calling them half giants. Oh, uh, so the other newer Dark Sun books just changed the name of them and call them Goliaths. Yes, that's interesting. Because the old bad. one in second edition. Uh, half giants i mean they were large creatures mm-hmm. and they pretty much had like double the hit points of anybody else they were kind of pretty ridiculous and that's why they scaled them back because they were ridiculous but it's sort of like that was a major aspect of of dark sun you know like every everybody who was anybody had these giant guards around them and they were towering and they could pretty much smash you with one hit so mm-hmm. changing them to just goliaths you know kind of takes a bit of that away sure although rob sort of dances that dance by by referring to them as half-giants and probably treating them similar to the second edition half-giants, but not making any of them central to the story. So you never really got to find out, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah. They, exactly. They're sort of around in the background here and there, but you, they're not, never really a big deal. Mm-hmm. Right on. Any other uh, thoughts as we uh, wrap up our conversation here? Things we want uh, to well, share? I certainly hope if they do more Dark Sun books, they're along these lines. Like I said, the other two new ones, I, I just couldn't stomach Right on. Yeah, same with me. There were just too many uh, divergence, too much divergence from kind of uh, the setting ideas, at least my setting ideas. Um, whereas this book pretty much exemplified it, and I really hope they get Rob to write another book and definitely another Dark Sun book. Yeah, th- this is the one book that if you want to learn about Dark Sun, you-, you go through this book. If you if you want to go through five books, you go through the Prison Pentad. But. Okay, so so read this book rather than the Prison Pentad if you want a, a one book introduction to to Dark Sun. Yeah, I would agree this, with that statement. Okay. Yeah, this keeps it on a really nice like on a. I mean, even though it's obviously city spanning and you know there's major events happening, this is still feels like a lower kind of street level. Whereas Prison Pentad, like I said before, is more epic in in scope. Right on. I think I probably would have had better luck with the book if I had read it in the summer and wasn't working from a place of exhaustion. So. <laughs> well, I, I just got done watching the, the Game of Thrones first season, and, and this book really kind of reminded me of that with the number of characters and plots going on. Okay. Well, and, and also just, and in particular with the number of characters, but taking it from the different points of views of the, of the characters, that's one big thing that's in the Game of Thrones, is that you see the different points of view and not just having a ton of different characters. Exactly. Right on. Cool. All right. Last chance to to say your piece before we uh, toss it on to the interview with Rob. Going once, going twice. I think we're good. Yep. 
Sold by the elf. <laughs> uh, so that was a, a great chat. Thanks for coming on, everyone. Uh, and we're always open to having folks join us for a discussion portion of the book. That's what makes it a book club. So if you want to join in uh, on a future episode, just email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com. And for now, let's go to Jeff and myself with Rob Schwab. Thanks, Tracy. And Rob Schwab is here with us now. Welcome back to the show, sir. Although this is your first time for a book club episode. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I'm glad to be back. So we are talking about your first and currently only novel. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, Death Mark. Uh, let's start off with, uh, let's get, you know, everybody has a different experience reading a book and it means different things to different people and what have you. But I'm, I'm curious, what, what's your take? What's Death Mark all about? Um, probably I would say the misery of human existence. And that's pretty much uh, where I was at while I was working on it. And that was kind of the message I wanted to give to the world was that, uh, you know, life can be difficult and there really aren't happy endings. And it is a uh, kind of a long, slow, agonizing wait for the, for the bitter, bitter end. And that's pretty much what Death Mark's about. It's an uplifting book. A uh, inspiring book, and one I hope that everyone takes a really powerful message from. I say that with a smile. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, specifically, what is the title reference? So, Deathmark. Uh, well, Deathmark was actually the working title of the book, uh, and it. In about halfway through the process, I wanted to do something a little bit more pretentious. The subtitle: "The Dread of This Desolation." And so I had pitched that to my editor, and he was like, yeah, I didn't like it, but I like it, but I didn't like it, but I like it. All right, we'll stick with it. And so I thought that was the title of the book, and then uh, it kind of showed up at the end during the last revisions that it was actually indeed called Deathmark. So uh, Deathmark was really – it kind of spoke back to an earlier draft where Melek was uh, being hunted. And you, the book preserves some of that, uh, and I weave it into the story a little bit more uh, as we go. But really – the larger kind of idea there is that all these characters are marked for death in one way or another. And so it's kind of their, uh, how they escape or try to escape it in some cases and some characters who manage to get away for now. You specifically mentioned um, the phrase death mark, but only in reference to one of the characters. And, um, you know, it, it just wasn't immediately clear to me. I guess everybody was, as you, as you say that, everybody was marked for death sort of in, in their own individual ways, weren't they? Yes, sir. Yeah. So you mentioned that this is a, a book, a story largely looking at um, how life is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> right. And sure. That, and that may play into the answer to um, my questions here. Because sometimes it's hard to tell who are the villains and who are the heroes and how are we supposed to know? Right. Um, well, uh, the that's kind of the that's kind of the thing I was working with throughout the throughout the book. I don't really think anybody in that book is really a hero. Um, in fact, I think they're all pretty despicable in some way. And that for me was an important. It was an important kind of idea for me to kind of get across. Was that I, I really felt that terrible people can do, can do sometimes good things, and good people can do terrible things, and that's kind of how it all works together. So, uh, you know, the case of Lauren, who is probably the most virtuous character, but is forced to do terrible things as the book goes on. Uh, it was really hard for me to write him because he was he was 
because I know I know what he wanted to do, and I kept putting in these terrible situations, and so it was a, uh, and I kept and I saw that I was just chipping away at his identity, and towards the end of the book, he's pretty much shattered, um, and that's but that's kind of what I was that's kind of the, that's the tone and the theme of the book, right? I mean there there is no there is no redemption, no salvation. It's just a a terrible, brutal slog that has kind of the, and, and the and the finality of death is kind of put off. Or maybe if for those people who haven't finished the book, uh, yeah. Tracy, I'll give you a chance to ask some questions before I keep going. I was going to say that one of the things I did like about the book was that there's a lot of the the gray area uh, stuff going on where there was no and, and it's perfect for a world without gods, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, it, so uh, I know. Jeff's next question is going to be, where did you get the source material? And he <laughs> mentions uh, Dune Trader, but I know when I was reading the book, I felt a lot of 300 and Spartacus going on. Uh, so where did, where, did, where did you get inspiration and then source material for the book? Um, aside from the, the Dark Sun uh, second edition materials, because I did a ton, a ton of research, uh, especially City by the, whether well, the Tear source book, and then there was the, uh, the Veiled Alliance was another book I used a lot of, um, and then Dune Trader. But uh, the movie inspiration for this book was Valhalla Rising, okay. which was one of my favorite movies of all time. That and a lot of black metal music. <laughs> well, the Ropes of Blood was like a common thing you said. <laughs> yeah, if I use that too much, I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. <laughs> Well, and, and I had that question in there, and that w- wasn't originally my question. That was um, from our, one of our guests, Andy, who I happen to know uh, personally as well, who's going to talk about the book with us, uh, well, to the listeners earlier, to us later. Uh, and, and we're time traveling here. Um, and, and he mentioned specifically that several of the characters were straight out of the source book, uh, Dune Trader. That's right. Uh, I wanted to be true to Dark Sun, um, and I knew it was a risky thing to lift characters out of, of canon. But I figured that when somebody buys a Dark Sun book, they want they want to they want a world that is that's consistent. And so that's instead of coming up with a new story that takes place in some isolated corner, I wanted to weave this story into the the lore of the world. And so, in order to do so in a proper way, in my in my mind, was to incorporate characters. I believe a lot of the characters were originally some of the not a lot, but some of the characters, especially uh, Tenya and well, basically Ngiovo Sham, came from Anthony Pryor's Dune Trader book, which was a great resource for the for the novel. So, how many? How what, what's the balance? How many characters are yours, and how many characters did you did you pull out of other source material? Uh, just how Sham and other characters get mentioned, uh, maybe get mentioned in passing. Um, mostly the characters, and I, this is this is kind of a shameful, I guess. Most of the characters came from my old Dark Sun campaign, naturally. <laughs> so uh, Lauren was my gladiator character, and Eris was played by friend Jim. And I took a lot of liberties with the campaign to make it fit. But uh, most of the characters came from the old campaign. Uh, Pacas was kind of a new invention, so was Alita Stell. Uh, she was new. She wasn't from the Dune Trader book at all. Yeah, and. One of the things I happen to like about the book, there seemed to be a lot of, uh, compared to some other books I've read, a lot of female characters, and they were very integral into the story. They weren't necessarily secondary characters. Was that something you meant to do? or? Yes. Well, I, I, you know, I, I happen to believe men and women are equal, and, uh, <laughs> and I, I really made it a conscious effort to make sure that 
I kind of I covered I gave well that they got a fair they got a fair share of the stage and uh, and it was I didn't find it difficult to slip into uh, the feminine voice I guess but I didn't I also didn't look at this as a chance to talk about their sexuality or any of that kind of thing I was just their people and I wanted to to reflect their interests in the world and and how to engage the plot in a logical and reasonable manner. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed that because uh, I often sometimes uh, shy away from Dark Sun because in the, when I read the books and the campaign guide and stuff, it felt a lot of times there wasn't as much room for women. I thought it was, this was an awesome way of adding them in. Just my two cents. Well, thanks. It, it's worth noting this is my my first experience reading a Dark Sun novel. <laughs> okay. And I assume that you've you've you're very steeped in the in the lore and the things that other people have written. I'm, I'm curious how do is is do most Dark Sun stories have this level of, of political intrigue, or was that something that, uh, an aspect of Dark Sun you were going you were trying to explore? It was certainly a, a, an aspect I was hungry for, uh, and I thought that Dark Sun has a lot of unmined. Well, that's that's probably not a good word. There's, <laughs> there's a lot there's there's a lot there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of politics in Dark Sun that we that gets overlooked. Um, and so I had two two kind of approaches. One, I wanted to kind of guarantee its place in the canon as something that lived between the two first books of the Prison Pentad, although not certainly not part of the series. But it kind of gives you a behind the scenes look at what went on between the first two books of Troy Denning's initial series. Uh, and then I wanted to look at the Dune Trader side of the game. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of campaigns use the Dune Trader kind of model as. To, as as grist for the mill for adventure design and for telling stories in that world. And so I thought that a, a story that focuses on the, you know, the kind of the tensions and the intrigues and the betrayals that betwe- between the competing merchant houses would be pretty interesting. It'd be an interesting backdrop. The central tension, however, is exploring that kind of stuff and still making sure the characters have some sort of an arc, right? And that they, they can develop and they can overcome their problems and be different at the end. And so that was a that was a challenge to do that in a space that I had to work with. A hundred thousand words turns out to be rather uh, that's very very few. <laughs> Particularly with the number, you had a lot of characters in this, which was I think in the end great because I liked the not knowing who is the uh, suppose it hero or whatever you want to call it. Like usually you're supposed to rally behind someone, and you had these stories that intersected, but it didn't come clear until later who you might want to root for. Right. That was a, that, that was very, that was largely intentional that I, I, I wanted to, I didn't want to do a situation where I had to constantly remind people who these people were, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I wanted to give lots of different points of view into this event that happens in the world. And so that, and it, for me, I guess the event was the most important part, right. which make, which makes it probably a, not a good, not maybe not the best approach for a first novel, but it was, <laughs> The one, the road I chose. Right. And, and the event that, I mean, if, if you were to say that, that this book was all about that event, the event that you're talking about is the ultimate struggle for control of who's going to be in, in charge of Tyr. Right. And okay. King Tithian, right. Because King Tithian, kind of, he just slides right in, right, at the end of uh, the first of the Prison Pentad books. And, he, you know, he gets there because he's got the support of various factions. But I, at the time, I couldn't quite believe that he would just manage to pull it off all by himself, even with the support of the heroes of Rickus and so on. And so I figured that there had to be somebody who was going to say, you know, buddy, maybe I'd like to take the crown instead. 
And so it was a, uh, it was interesting. Granted, it was logical that a Templar would certainly take over for a fall, fallen sorcerer king, but I wanted to make his rise to power a little less, uh, a little less uh, smooth. <laughs> okay, so is some of the things that happened, like you mentioned towards the end of the of the book, that uh, Rickus was pushing on towards towards Yurik uh, and that kind of stuff. Is that all because of lore outside of this book? And so you're you're sort of tying it into what's happening in those other stories. That's right. Uh, the second book of the Prison Pentad involves Tyr's war with Yurik. And Rickus is the general, and he leads the armies of Tyr through a kind of an adventure story that culminates in this brutal, bloodthirsty battle uh, in the city-state to the north. Um, so, I had, so I had a really I had a narrow window to work with between uh, the first, those two books because it's not really clear how much time took place between those moments, those events. So... Deathmark was able. I was able. To, I had enough room to. I basically, I had the freedom to create the room that I needed to have those events happen, and I could spill into a little bit of Deathmark uh, into the second book uh, if I needed to. I'm curious about some of the challenges that that this kind of a book brings up. I mean, writing in Dark Sun is, I think, difficult on its own, um, just because everything is different. So you have to take some time to explain everything. You know, every every creature is different. Every every race that you, that people used to fantasy think they know is different. So you have to sort of highlight the differences, um, and, and that can make it difficult for new readers coming in. And they're you know with the the new Dark Sun setting books that had just come out um, around the same time that this this was published. If, if I'm remembering the timeline right, um, you know you also have this. I, I imagine you have this uh, this push to try to you know make it a, a book that's friendly to to new readers as well. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges that doing all of these things at once sort of brings to writing this kind of a book. Well, I think that there, there are certainly a lot of challenges in this in, in, in this particular process. I mean, first, this was uh, I had to learn how to write a novel in the first place, uh, which was by everything I thought about writing kind of went out the window uh, when I started it because about halfway through the process. I realized that I had 80,000 words of junk and I had to throw them all out and start over. So uh, that, that was the first problem. The second problem is that anytime, and this is not from any kind of position of expertise, but really it's just mostly just a guy who managed to write a, a novel, uh, the diving into a world that's fairly well-developed and, and well-constructed it's got to be a nightmare. Like, for example, I can't imagine what, it's, what Bruce Cordell has to do when he jumps into the Forgotten Realms, right? Because there's so much stuff that's been written for that world and so many game books and so many novels and all those other comic books and, every, and so on. You, you're almost afraid for your characters to take a step lest you, you know, create these horrible ripples again. With Dark Sun, it's a little bit different because there isn't really a whole lot. I mean, there are a number of novels, but... And there's a lot of second edition materials, but because the way we took, because of what we did with the fourth edition uh, Dark Sun setting, we kind of turned the clock back to just after the revolution. So we were we had we we I could I could have kind of invalidated some of the canon uh, by making different choices. I obviously I, I I was very conscious not to do that, but I wasn't. The constraints weren't were quite as, as weren't quite the same. That said, whatever gains I made on uh, the setting being loosely defined, uh, was completely wrecked by the fact that, yes, I had to describe every creature, everything in the world to, to, to school the reader in, in what's actually going on. And it, at one point we were talking about Crudlus and Erdlus and, you know, and, and Kanks and Mechalots and all these different beasts of burden. And you're just like, you know, 
my editor is like, you can just use just use one. And I was like, well, we can't just use one because each of these have different importance because they fill different roles. And uh, so, you know, you got to talk about the kinks, you got to talk about the mechalots, and you got to introduce these creatures and give enough of a description that a new reader who's coming in fresh to Dark Sun has an idea what it is, but without boring the people who know what Dark Sun's all about. So that was that was a it was a fine it was a tightrope to walk, but yeah, with probably mixed success. Hold on, Tracy. Well, I would say I'm kind of glad you didn't stick to just one because if 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 all the novels stick to just one, I, I've found recently that the novels actually help me understand some of the game stuff better to bring it to the table. So I'm kind of glad that you didn't stick to just one because sure. now I have more stuff to pull from. Cool. Good. And I, and I think it's a careful balance to walk too, right? Uh, you know, yeah, totally. Uh, you you want to not overwhelm, but at the same time, it, you want it to ring true to people who are familiar with the setting. And just if you just had you know kanks and ignored everything else, then that wouldn't have felt like Dark Sun. Right. Exactly. So. And that's also why I made an effort to drop in stuff like I think there's only one Thrycreen character in the book. Right. But uh, I wanted to make sure there was at least one, even though Thrycreen would have nothing to do with this story. Sure. Um, so. Right on. Yeah, I was kind of curious about that character because when I when we f- were first introduced to him, I kind of thought he would be be around off and on throughout the story, um, and that obviously didn't turn out to be the case. Right. And, that was also, and it's also that was also intentional to try to defeat expectations, right? Mm-hmm. Is that some of these minor characters are there just to kind of move the story forward, or to show, like in the case of that character, to kind of show just how alien this world is. That you you know they're walking bug guys that are running around, and this guy's kind of shows that what. And his wretchedness is, reflects on Korvac's diminished status, or at least it did in my mind. Hold on. I have a, a very story-specific question. <laughs> the, at, at the end of the, the story, the, the half-elf, Eris, I think it is? Yep. Who's been dragged around by, by Tenya through most of the book at this point, and she's been slowly draining his life force and using him sort of as an apprentice or whatever this whole time. Um, he helps facilitate her downfall by pulling out this black thing. It, it's broken and the day is saved. Right. What exactly is the black thing and why couldn't he have just broken it out in the desert like two weeks before? Sure. Uh, so <laughs> I- I can't remember exactly. I mean, it's been a while since I've read the book, but I think there's a while earlier in the book. She, I mean, the black thing makes an appearance, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. the the reason why Eris is is pushed to this point where he shatters the device. And I'll tell you what it is in a second. Uh, is that he sees he knows that Lauren's going to die, and I know that there's a moment where his resolve tends to almost almost breaks, but Temya's magic is so strong that she's got him pretty much under her. Th- under her thumb the entire time. And she's gaining more and more control over him as, she, as, as it goes on. But in the middle of this big fight, her, her attention is being shifted all over the battlefield. And so she's pretty much drained away all of Eris's life force, or all of what she needed when she's, while she's directing her demonic monsters and her undead warriors and all that stuff. So Eris has the opportunity to see what's really kind of going on, and sees a threat to, to Lauren, and then is able to uh, shatter this implement, which is what it is. Uh, and that breaks her power. Uh, so it's this, it's this kind of, it had she focused on Eris at all in that fight, I can imagine she would have won and Tyr would have been hers until somebody else swept in and destroyed everything. But because she got greedy at the end, uh, Eris was able to 
break free enough to remember the bonds of friendship that he had with uh, Lauren in the past. Now, the object is uh, is really something I was going to explore in the second book if I get an opportunity to to do a second book. But uh, I've had this idea that it involves uh, tiefling raiders. Uh, We kind of talk about hint at the tieflings. Uh, and they're kind of leftovers from the uh, ruined hells, from the primordials of God War, from ancient history. And so it's a piece of basically a piece of hell that she uses as an implement that she got from these guys. And that would be that's in theory part of the central plot of uh, whatever, whenever the second book, if it ever happens, happens. Okay. And so, the, and that was the item that then allowed her to raise this undead army. That's right. Okay. That's right. So it's intentionally mysterious with the purpose of hopefully being able to explore it in the future. That's right. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I, I just like to imagine that part of the reason she let her uh, guard drop with Eris was that she's just overly confident in her ability to uh, take over the minds of men. So uh, I was just throwing that out there. Well, that's certainly within her. That's certainly within the, the bounds of her character. She's, she definitely is, is confident in herself. Yeah, and her ability to manipulate others. Yeah, and I, and I certainly saw that when we were first introduced to her uh, back in her in her home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I so, I so totally didn't see her as a necromancer though for, for probably what the first half the book or so. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to. I, I try. I wanted to keep that secret, and I wanted to keep because I didn't because it's not exactly. It's mostly rumors about about her defiling ways. And uh, House Sham has a lot of this kind of overtones about you know being steeped in dark magic, and so I mean I think it may be I mean maybe her stat block in the in the book says that she's a defiler, but I figure that she wouldn't advertise it, and so to get far enough away from uh, her father and from Nibine, she'd be able to do whatever the hell she wanted. Right on. All right, Tracy, you got any any last questions before we uh, let Rob go back to his life? Uh, I can't think of any right now. All right, Rob, you have any last things you want to share with um, the the listeners about the book and, and the story and all such things? Well, I, I basically I just want to say thanks for uh, thanks for reading it. Uh, I hope you liked it, and uh, it was a, it was it was an interesting experience to write one, and I hope to do another one soon. And hopefully, <laughs> if you do another one, it doesn't take you to such a dark place, huh? <laughs> yes, right. Well, maybe we'll have sunshine and rainbows at the end of the next one. Excellent, beautiful. In in dark sun. In dark sun, right? It's, they need they need rainbows there too. Sometimes it's got to rain eventually. Sure, yeah, sure. <laughs> did you? Uh, so actually, I did have one quick question. Well, it's probably not quick. How are, how is it different rating the novel than rating? Because uh, did you work on the campaign guide as well? I did. So how is how is the difference between writing a novel for it and then writing a campaign guide? I know the campaign guide came first. Sure. Um, I think it's mostly the approach that you take to the the writing, um, and, and obviously, I, you know, a friend of mine once said, "You're the most prolific technical writer I know," and I bristled at that because I was like, "I'm not a technical writer. I design games, but I also write a lot of story text that's not just an instruction manual." But uh, and that was a big that was a kind of the big wake up call for me. That was when I started working on the novel. It was like, "Oh wait, all the all the stuff that I write for, for game design is takes a totally different part of my brain." I mean, with like a fourth edition product, you have you're writing. You've got if you're writing to fill a page, and you know, or a number of pages, or a couple of spreads, and so you know, you gauge how much you can say based on how much room you have to play with. 
and you're just basically giving information in as stylistic, in as aesthetically pleasing way as possible. Uh, in this case, the novel, there's character development, there's there the end. You've, you've got uh, the settings you have to reveal, and all of those other elements that are all kind of working at you at the same time. That it it was a I felt like I was it, it, for me it felt like going back to when I used to paint. Uh, it was a completely different kind of artistic enter, uh, enterprise. Whereas, uh, and I get that same kind of juice when I'm designing a game book or a game product, but it's a different kind of it's a different kind of juice. And there's much more fear and loathing in novel writing. <laughs> I can see that. Sure. Well, it's a lot of words without necessarily talking to other people right away. I think. But, right, and there's no and there's no break where you say, oh, "Okay, now I get to actually design nine powers." Right. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. And 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 I'm pretty sure as I read the book, I saw many many skill challenges, which I know you love. Yes, I do love my skill challenges. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, Rob. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Good talking to you. Bye. Bye. All right. And now we are come to the end of our show. I want to say thanks to our uh, interviewee, Robert J. Schwab, author of Deathmark, as well as our guest, Andy. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. If people want to find you anywhere on the Internet, where could they look? Uh, A-W-M-Y-H-R, pretty much everywhere. Um, Twitter would be the best. Right on. And what about you, Robert? Uh, you can find me at Radu76, that's R-A-D-D-U-7-6, at Twitter. And then uh, uh, you can go to athos.org and find me at Radu at athos.org. Very good. And I also want to thank our sponsors, Gamerati and Continue Magazine. So thank them. Uh, if anybody interacts with them at all, make sure you thank them for their support. Uh, Gamerati, I believe, has a Twitter handle. If you wanted to tweet your thanks to them, it's uh, at Gamerati. And uh, Continue Magazine is Continue Mag. So make sure to let them know that you appreciate them supporting the show. Great. And as always, if you'd like to contact us with any questions or comments, you can email us at the show at gmail.com. Go to the forums at gamershavenpodcast.com or call our BizTome line at 919-BizTome, 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Which we need to, uh, we got a call recently and we need to uh, get that in the next episode. Yep. Very good. And you can find show notes for whatever we discussed and links to the to the various things going on here at thetomeshow.com. And that has been the Deathmark episode of the Tome Show Book Club. Join us next time as we look at a whole bunch of D&D comics. Uh, the Dungeons & Dragons comic numbers 13 through 15, finishing up that series. The Infestation 2 D&D comic numbers 1 and 2. And the 2012 annual, all those three of which are all Eberron and with the same characters. And our first look at the Forgotten Realms number 1. I'm on the wall.